Welcome to the Word Ministry of Resurrection Church, where Dr. Joseph G. Matera is the senior pastor and presiding bishop. We trust that the following message will be a blessing. Open up your hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you through the preaching and teaching of one of God's choice servants. Well, let's just have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless and help us to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying now and the focus that we need for this content-dense message. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was saying in the first service, this is the kind of message that a person would have to take notes or listen to again if you're going to get anything out of it. Um, I am, as you know, I don't come to entertain you or just make you feel good, but to help you become a disciple of Christ. And in order to be a disciple of Christ, you need to know the Word of God. So some would say, Lord, help me know the Word of God. And usually around this time of year, we preach a message related to the year 2020. And I could think of many fancy things to say. I could talk about 2020, having 2020 vision, blah, 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 blah. But I really felt like we were supposed to dig down deep and understand the gospel in a way that we've never known it before. So Lord, help us. And uh, this message will change your life. This message will revolutionize how you understand the Bible, how you understand the Gospels. You will have another Gospel. Believe me, in a good way. It will be a full Gospel like you've never believed. And you're going to see so much in the four Gospel narratives that you've never seen before. So it's really, really important that you catch this today and uh, take some notes if you can. If you write notes, you'll receive and retain 80% of everything that's shared. If you don't, you will forget 98% by tomorrow. All right, so today I want to talk about Jesus as the fulfillment of the biblical story. Jesus as the fulfillment of the biblical story. And my objective today is to help the congregation understand the fullness and implications of the gospel and how it is not just what Jesus did during the Passion Week. It's not just what he did when he died, was buried, and resurrected. And basically, when we understand the gospel, uh, we basically think it's just the last few hours of Christ on the cross. But what we're going to see today is that Jesus is the panoramic view of the whole biblical story. And it's just, like I said, it's going to revolutionize you. This will lay a foundation for the rest of your life if you catch this. You will be rooted and grounded in the gospel like never before. So questions to ask yourself, do I understand the big story of God and the redemption of his people? Do I truly understand the gospel or just the last few hours of his life on the cross? Do I endeavor to be a Christ follower in every area of my life, and do I want to surrender to Christ to start this new year? And so, as an introduction, Jesus said, as recorded in Luke 24, verse 44 to 49, that everything that is written in the law 
the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so when I first read that, uh, and he said that that's all speaking about him. And when I first read that, I thought that he was referring just to the prophecies. There are many prophecies about Jesus, his birth, his death, his burial, all of these certain prophecies that he, the ruler would come from, from the tribe of Judah. It talks about in Genesis 49, he came as a seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, who would crush the head of Satan. But when I started diving in and studying the scriptures, I realized that what he was referring to is not just specific prophecies, even though there are many, but the whole story of the Bible points to him. That's a huge difference. So that even when you have passages that don't make sense, like uh, Matthew quotes a verse when, when Joseph brought his son out of Egypt, when he had to hide from Herod, and he quoted Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, that was referring to Israel, not Jesus. So I said, what does that mean? I would scratch my head. And now I understand what it means, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. He's the fulfillment of the story of Adam, the fulfillment of the story of Exodus, the fulfillment of the story of the tabernacle, the fulfillment of the story of Genesis. He recalibrated and actually reset the whole universe in his life and recalibrated the whole biblical story. And so what I want to do is unpack this and uh, to show you, even in the very beginning of the Gospels, we see that the Gospel can't just be the last six hours of his life on the cross. This is what most evangelicals believe, that the Gospel is just... The four spiritual laws, that's important to know. Leading someone to Christ based on what he did on the cross, that's important to know. But we have to realize that that is not the whole gospel. What he did on the cross is the culmination of the gospel, the culmination of his life. But it is not the full gospel. And as we understand what it says in Mark 1.1, Mark 1.1 says it, it was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some would say the beginning, which implies that the gospel had to do with his whole life. The good news had to do with what he did for his whole life, not just what he did on the cross. So in other words, the whole gospel is the gospel. The whole book of Mark, the whole book of Matthew, the whole book of John, the whole book of Luke is the gospel, not just what he did when he died on the cross. How many understand that so far? All right, so evangelicals think it's just his last week, his passion week. But what we want to do is dispel that. So how does Jesus, how does the gospel fulfill the whole biblical story? Well, let's start with point one. The Jesus story is the retelling of Genesis. The retelling of the Genesis story of creation. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God separated the light from the darkness, etc. So you get the picture. And so we see in Genesis 1.1 the creation of the what's called the cosmos or the universe. Well, John, the beloved Apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, by no coincidence, starts his Gospel off by saying, 
In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and apart from Him was nothing made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't overcome it. So here we have beginnings. Here we have light. Here we have light and darkness separated. But this is retelling the story through the lens of Jesus Christ, who came before even the creation of the world. So right there, John is saying that Jesus is now retelling the story of Genesis. He's recreating the heavens and the earth in his own image based on the fact that he was the one who made the heavens and the earth. So now we're getting the true picture of Genesis 1 through the lens of John chapter 1. Isn't that something? Genesis 2 records what God said after he made the heavens and the earth and after the six days of creation. And it says in Genesis chapter 2 that on the seventh day, God finished his work. Somebody say, God finished his work. It says, God finished his work that he had done after he made the world in six days. And then it says he rested on the seventh day, that's the Sabbath, the Sabbath day. He rested on the seventh day from all his work. And he said, behold, it is good what he did, right? By no coincidence, John writes in chapter 19 that after Jesus finished everything, it says when he had, um, uh, his last words of Jesus were, it is finished. You see that? Why did he say it is finished? Because he had successfully finished his work of renewing and restoring back the heavens and the earth. Based on the fact that after God made the earth and he said it is good, after Adam fell, he put the whole universe back into chaos. Jesus said it is finished because he now reconciled the whole world, the universe, back to himself. Isn't that amazing? It's not just about restoring us and bringing us to heaven it has to do with restoring the whole universe. Point two, Jesus, he was going through this chronologically. So first we started with creation. The second chapter of Genesis, it talks about how he created Adam or Adam as we know him. And so we see how God made Adam. And he said in Genesis 1.28 that he, uh, he put God, God put Adam in a garden in chapter 2. Chapter 1, it says the command that he gave Adam. So chapter 1 of Genesis and chapter 2 are speaking of the same thing, except chapter 1 gives a general overview of creation. Chapter 2 now gets specific related to the creation of Adam. So what did God say to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28? After he made Adam and brought him together with Eve, he said, bear fruit, which means have children, multiply, which means have great children, you know, grandchildren, multiply the children generationally. And then he said, repopulate the earth, have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and over every creeping thing. So basically what he said to Adam and Eve was, I want you to have children that will steward the earth, that will rule over the earth. I want you and your children to be the one who manage planet earth. Isn't that amazing? So that's what he told the first Adam, by no coincidence, 
we see that the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 14, about Jesus, that the Word, meaning Jesus, became flesh. He became human. He became the perfect man. He became the new Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.45. It says, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And so this life-giving spirit, he became flesh. He became, by implication, the last Adam, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And when he calls Jesus the last Adam, what he's saying is Jesus came to do what the first Adam failed to do. How many are following that? First Adam was called to have dominion over the earth, and he failed to do that. The last Adam, Jesus, came to do what the first Adam failed to do. And that's why when he came, he said, repent, believe the good news of the gospel. And he said, it's called the gospel of the kingdom of God, meaning the reign of God. I'm bringing my reign back. I'm not involved just in Sunday meetings. I'm not involved just in synagogue. I'm not involved just in religious space or religious buildings. I'm, re, I'm, I'm involved in all of the earth. I am taking back the whole earth. I am, as the last Adam, called to subdue the earth and to have dominion over all of culture. And then, it's not just Jesus, but all of his followers are called to steward the earth. And so, it's not a coincidence Jesus is called the last Adam, because he's connected to the fact that the first Adam failed in his mandate. So this is very powerful. And so as the children of the last Adam, the church, that's us, someone say, I'm the church. Our job, our primary call is to participate with Jesus in his kingdom, in his reign. That's why he taught us to pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's all about the earth. It's not about dying and going to heaven. Christianity is not about going to heaven. Christianity is about bringing the reign of God on earth and bringing God's kingdom on earth, which is why we celebrate the opening of restaurants, being a police officer, being someone who works with the, uh, uh, with the political leaders in Albany. In other words, it's about being a Christian that helps bring God's reign and rule in every aspect of culture, not just what happens in a building on Sunday. Sunday is to be equipped, to be discipled. Monday is when we walk out, what we learn. And as the children of the last Adam, the church is called to participate with Jesus in the renewal of creation. So Resurrection Church is called to participate in the renewal of all things. By no accident, when we launched our ministry in 1981, Sunset Park was a total disaster. Not by coincidence, within 12 years, we participated in the renewal of all things, and we were part of the reason why the whole community was restored qualitatively, and we could show you that that took place before gentrification, which means that there was a qualitative change and shift in the people, not in the geography of the people. You see what I'm saying? And there's a lot more we could say. And so our church was part of 
participating in the renewal of our community of 168,000 people. This is why Jesus said in John 7, 38, that for those who believe, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. So while most of the church is praying for the Spirit to come down, Jesus called us to go into the community and let the Spirit come through us. It's not about waiting on God to soak in the river and wait for the Spirit to come. It's about going out and being His witnesses and allowing the Spirit that's already in us to come through us. If all you do is pray and wait for the Spirit to fall, you're not fulfilling the mandate. The Spirit is already in you. Now let Him come out and be activated by being a witness of Christ. Of course, we wait on God, we pray, we worship, we spend time with God. Our church is now going to be doing monthly uh, times of worship. Of course you do all that, but if that's all you do, you're not fulfilling the mandate. All right, point three. We've read that Jesus is the renewal of the whole creation. John 1, we read that he's the new Adam, the last Adam actually. Point three. Jesus is the new Exodus. How many know the story of Exodus? If you never read the Bible, at least you saw Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, right? And so we should all know the story how Israel was rescued out of slavery by Moses, um, by the hand of God. He gave the Ten Commandments, etc., brought them through the Red Sea. Um, Israel was finally freed from the king of Egypt after the angel of death killed the firstborn of Pharaoh. And the reason why the angel of death bypassed the Jews was because they shed the blood of a lamb, had the Passover meal, and put the blood on the doorpost of their house. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's in Exodus 12 to 14. No coincidence, Paul says about Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Wow. Jesus in the New Testament is depicted as the true Passover lamb. That's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he said, uh, uh, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, as the true Passover lamb, enables us to pass out of slavery and out of bondage and from death into life, into the land of his inheritance, which is the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus announced the kingdom of God is at hand. The promised land of the Jews was always only a depiction, a type and a shadow of the kingdom that would be realized when Christ came. And so when Jesus wanted to explain what was about to happen with his death and burial and resurrection, he didn't give a theological teaching like I would have done. He depicted his passion by having a meal called the Last Supper. He had a meal. And then he said, this is my body which is broken for you, broke the bread, gave it to them. And then he said, this is my blood, gave them the wine which is shed for you. And that was how he explained theologically what he was about to do. That's why we have communion every week. That's why it's so powerful, because it reenacts and declares the Lord's death until he comes. It's a way of preaching the gospel to everybody. 
And what are we preaching? We're preaching that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the new exodus. Jesus is the blood that was put on the doorpost of our heart. Jesus is the one who took us out of the slavery, the bondage. We all were once blind, but now we see. We were once slaves, and now we're free. Jesus is the reason for our liberty. He who the Son has set free is free indeed. That all has exodus narration words in it. Uh, 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 John 5.24, again, alluding back to that exodus, the true fulfillment of it. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, he who, who believes, let me see your hand, you believe, you believe him who sent Jesus, you have everlasting life. It's not when you die, that's too late. If you don't have it now, then you're finished, you're gone, or you're in trouble. You're supposed to have eternal life now, not when you die. If you wait till you die, it's already too late. He said, you have eternal life now. And then he says, and you do not come into judgment, but you have already passed from death unto life. You've already experienced the exodus. You've already gone through the what? The Red Sea. Israel went through a sea that was painted red because it pictured the blood of Jesus. They went through that sea that took them out of bondage, delivered them from their enemies because the Red Sea typified the coming blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. You see how the whole picture fits together. Then we find point four. So far, we've seen Jesus' the retelling of the story of creation. We saw Jesus as the last Adam. Chronologically, we see how he is the new Exodus. How about this? He is the continuation of the story of the nation of Israel. He is the new tabernacle that united heaven and earth. When we look at the Genesis 1 account of creation, now I could teach on this for a week. I'm going to go, going to go fast. Just try to catch this. The Genesis 1 account of creation seems to indicate that the earth and the heavens were created in the form of a dome or a temple, meaning God originally planned for the spirit and the natural world and the universe to seamlessly interact as his sacred space, as his sanctuary, his temple. Does that make sense? That's why everything belongs to God. So God always desired that heaven and earth would be united in function together and the whole cosmos to be the place of his habitation. That's why it says in Psalm 19, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. The glory of God, the Shekinah glory, it's not just in the temple, it's in the universe. And we see that that's why he says that God set a tabernacle for the sun which comes out as a bridegroom leaving his chamber. There's so much more we could say. Isaiah 66, 1 says, this is what the Lord God says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? By implication, the whole universe is his house, is his temple. So why do you think you can contain him in a human-made house? Uh, Hebrews 9, I'm not going to read this whole thing, verses 11 to 25, it talks about how the earthly tabernacle was a pattern of the heavenly tabernacle. And we find that God called Israel to steward 
the tabernacle after the fall of Adam, the heavens and the earth were separated. God and man were separated. Chaos came. That's why we have tornadoes and uh, uh, evil, and we have horrible things, horrific things that take place in the earth. And so God gave Moses the command after the Jews passed through the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness. They were guided by what? The tabernacle. The tabernacle became the epicenter that connected heaven and earth. The tabernacle was where God himself dwelled in the most holy place. That was where the face of God shone, out of which God's throne, out of which God's uh, governance for the earth came out of that. And God called all the Jews his priests, the nation of priests in Numbers uh, 19. So originally, after Adam, who was supposed to stew the earth and bring the whole earth under God's dominion, failed, then God gave it to a nation. He said, well, one man messed up, maybe a nation will do it. Of course, I'm, I'm putting in human uh, language. God always knew the nation would fail too, but he gave it to Israel and wanted Israel through the building of the tabernacle, which we find in Exodus 25, to become the epicenter of the earth, to bring the presence, the glory of God to every nation. That's why he called them a nation of priests. But of course, they fell into idolatry. They began to worship other gods. They failed miserably. And God had to judge and remove them. And so because they failed, not an accident, Jesus came. Again, to quote John 1.14 about Jesus, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word dwelt is tabernacle. He became the tabernacle. He became the one who was able to unite heaven and earth. After Adam failed, after Israel failed, Jesus continued the story that started in Genesis 1. And he was the true tabernacle that was able to unite heaven and earth. Does this, this make sense? This is why he said in John 2 uh, uh, that if you destroy this temple, meaning his body, I will raise it up in three days. And the Jews were upset and said, wow, it took us 46 years, you know, when, uh, to rebuild this temple that Babylon destroyed and Herod rebuilt it. it. took us 46 years to build this temple. And they were offended at him. But Jesus said, I'll build it in three days, meaning because it never really dwelt with God. The Shekinah never dwelt in that second temple. Jesus came as the true temple. That's why it tells us in Hebrews 10 verse 19 that when we come through Jesus into the holy place by his blood, it says that we come through a new and living way that has been opened for us through the temple, that is to say his flesh. Through the curtain or the veil, that is to say his flesh, meaning he is the true temple. He's the true tabernacle. He is the one who joins heaven and earth. And so, now listen, hold on to your seats. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, he went into heaven, right? What happened to the temple if he went into heaven? That's us. It says the church is now the temple of the living God. We become the epicenter and rule of the presence of God on earth since Jesus lives inside of us. Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 22, we are the temple. We are the fullness of the manifestation of God's presence, the visible presence of God. 
the invisible God. We are the greatest manifestation of the kingdom of God on the earth. That's why if God wants to do something, he first looks to the church. Are you following the typology? This is this will connect the whole Bible together. And um, I don't want to get too complicated, but in Daniel chapter 9, it actually says that after Babylon destroyed the temple, there was going to be a rebuilding of it. And Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 to 27, that from the rebuilding of the temple, this is before it was built, from the rebuilding of the temple until the Messiah comes will be 77s, which are 490 years. So when you look at Nehemiah and Ezra, you see when they rebuilt the temple, you calculate around 490 years, it comes to A.D. 26 or A.D. 27. That's around the time Jesus appeared. So that's why everybody was anticipating the Messiah's return. And there were false messiahs. And they even asked John, are you the Messiah? Are you the one to come? And he said, no, no, the true Messiah uh, is so great, I won't even be able to tie his shoes. That's how great he is. He said, when he comes, I, he's not just going to baptize in water, he's going to baptize with the Holy Ghost in fire. So they were all looking for the Messiah. And that is why when Jesus came, it says in Mark 1.14, he came into Galilee, he proclaimed the good news of God and said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What did he mean by the time is fulfilled? He was saying, I am the Messiah that Daniel prophesied about that will come after 770s, 490 years after that second temple, which didn't have the presence of God, which failed miserably to bring God on the earth. After that failed, the true Messiah came. That's why it says in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born of the law. Does the Bible now make a little more sense? That's why He said the time is fulfilled. Because they were looking for the Messiah. You look in Daniel 9.5. Jesus is the promised deliverer and conqueror of the enemy. David was called to be the prototypical Jesus. He experienced things in the Old Testament that only the New Testament can have. He had uh, access to the Ark of the Covenant, not just once a year in the Day of Atonement. He wasn't a high priest, but it says that he and the sons of Asaph prophesied before the Ark day and night, 24 hours a day. Why? Because God called David to be a type of Christ, gave him access as if he was Jesus to the New Testament benefits. Jesus is called the offspring of David. And this is why David is so important. But what was the big test that David was going to fulfill this mandate? Well, when he was a young boy, still a teenager, he was not even a millennial, he'd be Generation Z. He reached the capstone of his life and he typified Christ when he slew Goliath. 1 Samuel 17. He slew Goliath, and Goliath wanted to rule the world. He represented Satan. He represented the sons of Adam who were in sin and darkness. He mocked God, and he wanted to show that you don't have to be in covenant with God, and you could be the strongest, the greatest, and you could rule without God. And David slew Goliath, and he became a type of Jesus who became the one who slew the dragon, 
Satan. It says that the Son of Man appeared that He might destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus became the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise that all of God's enemies would be destroyed. When Jesus was born, it says that John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied saying, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a strength or a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Not an accident. As he spoke by his holy prophets that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to his father Abraham to grant. What did he say to Abraham? He granted that we being delivered from the hand of all of our enemies might serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That's why in John 13, Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Meaning, he had to defeat and destroy Satan, who is the uh, uh, Goliath of, of the universe. He had to destroy that uncircumcised heathen who tried to set up an alternate kingdom. And once he destroyed him, he was able to draw true believers back to himself. Jesus is the great champion who destroyed all of our enemies. He's the promised deliverer and conqueror of the enemy. So you see how that story fits in. We're always looking for a superhero. Marvel tries to come up with a DC Comics. All They're trying to find the God-man or the man like God or the man like one of the gods like Thor to become the, uh, uh, the hero, the savior. But uh, all of them fall flat on their face next to the true gospel, the Jesus called El Gabor in Isaiah 9-7, which means champion, the one who defeats our enemies and brings us. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. doesn't matter what comes against you. If God be for you, who can be against you? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor anything in all creation shall be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is El Gabor, the champion, the one who slew Goliath, the one who defeated Leviathan, the one who slew the dragon that's manifested in Revelation 12 that is in be, uh, behind the powers of the political Antichrist, of the powers of darkness. Jesus slew him, defeated him, said it is finished. Amen. Nothing to ever be afraid. Is this starting to make sense? I could put the whole book of Revelation together in this if I had time, but I don't. Last but not least, Jesus is the exalted king. You know, Israel looked for a king and it hurt God's feelings. Look at 1 Samuel 8. Israel begged Samuel, give us a king like the nations have. And Samuel was grieved and God said to Samuel, Samuel, they didn't reject you, they rejected me. Because God was always the king. You know, Moses was not the king of Israel. God was always the king. Moses was just the leader that God used, but he always pointed to Jesus, or well, God is the king. So God was always the king, and they wanted another king like the world. In spite of that, 
The Psalms talk about how God has always been the king. Psalm 47, it says, But God is the king of the earth. Sing praises to him. We sing because he's king. It says in Psalm 145, I will exalt you, my God, my king, and bless your name forever. Isaiah 6, it says that Isaiah had a vision of uh, the Most High God. He was taken up into the council of heaven during a worship service. And he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen who? The King! The Lord of hosts! Jesus and Pilate were having a conversation. Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus said, You say that I am a king. And for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is not just your personal savior. He is your Lord. He's not just someone where you live like a devil during the week and think you'll be saved and go to heaven at the end of the day. How could he save you if he's not your Lord? If he doesn't own you, how could he save you and protect you? He can only save that which he owns. You can't act like a Christian on Sunday and like a devil on Monday. He's got to be your Lord. Somebody say, he's got to be my Lord. You might say, well, pastor, why are you preaching like this? I'm getting convicted. I hope you get even more convicted. I hope you get a spirit of guilt too on top of that. It's godly sorrow that leads you to repentance. It's not flowery, flaky messages that pamper you while you go to hell. And when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, this is the thing that crucified him. The Pharisees, the high priest said, Are you the son of the blessed one? Jesus said, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. What was Jesus saying? He was alluding to that awesome, awful prophecy that Daniel had, Daniel 7. He said, and I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven. You see what Jesus said? There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and that was presented to him and given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. God is not your butler. You're called to serve him. All peoples, nations, languages should serve him. Relinquish ownership over your money. Relinquish ownership over your time. Relinquish ownership over your personhood. Relinquish ownership over your body. Your body is not yours. You shouldn't be sleeping around every Tom, Dick, and Harry. You shouldn't be manifesting with, with pornography. You shouldn't be calling yourself a Christian and, and, and misusing your body. Relinquish ownership of your life. Otherwise, you're playing games. Oh, you're preaching too strong. If I don't preach strong, one day I'm going to stand before God. And he's going to ask me why I watered down the living word of God to make people feel good while they went down to the wrong road, the road to perdition. And Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Not you, not me, not celebrity preachers, not even the U.S. 
so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. The U.S. is not going to last forever. But his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus was never elected by the Republican Party. He was never elected by the Democratic Party. He was never voted in by the people. He was always God's choice. And because of that, no man can unelect him. And this is why Jesus said this before he ascended into heaven. He said, all authority, not some, and not that would you give him. I hate it when people say, crown him with many crowns. You can't crown Jesus. Man tried to do that in John 6, and Jesus ran away from them. No man can crown God. You don't make him Lord. He is Lord. You're just smart if you submit to his lordship. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Only the Father could give it to him. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I've suggested to you. Amen? No, all that I've commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He'll be with those who teach and preach what he has commanded them. And so... All authority has been given to him. Because of that, he is Lord. He is king. The question is, is he your Lord? Are you your own Lord? Let me give you a litmus test. Do you do what you want or what God wants? Do you try to read his word to find out his will, or you don't even care to read his word? Do you try to pray and hear from the Holy Ghost? Are you involved in his body, his bride? function with his people or you just say I do it my way I go to church when I feel like it even though the church was who he gave his life for and the church is the visible body of the invisible Jesus he rules through his church in closing he says this Paul says this in Ephesians 1 you want to know what's going to happen at the end? You want to know what's going to happen at the end of the day? The end of human history? He said he revealed the mystery of his will. In Ephesians 1 verse 9. I'm going to read that. This is what's going to happen. He revealed the mystery of his will. He said he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. His purpose is in Christ. Someone say, in Christ. It's not in you and me. It's in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time. So that in the fullness of time, this is the end of human history, he is going to unite or align all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. Everything's going to be summed up in Jesus. You might as well get ahead of the curve and put him first. You might as well get ahead of the curve and make him Lord because one day everything is going to be summed up in him. No more of this political nonsense. No more of these false agendas. No more celebrities getting the praise of men more than the, the God gets praise from people. No more putting football before God. 
Men would never miss a football game, but they'll stay home from church on Sundays so that they could play games. No more. One day, when Jesus is manifest as king, no one else is going to get the glory. And he's given you a chance now to make him Lord. What are you going to do with that chance? Let's pray. We trust that you were blessed. For more information regarding our church, please go to our website at www.resurrectionchurchofny.com or call 718-436-0242, extension 0.